summary executions, civilians blindfolded and shot, mass graves, the targeting of air raid shelters and hospitals. There's a growing body of evidence of war crimes following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thousands of Ukrainians have been killed, millions forced abroad. Around the world, many are appalled and also bewildered that this war has been not just tolerated, but championed by the leading spiritual authority in Russia, Patriarch Kirill, head of the Russian Orthodox Church. He's referred to Russia's opponents in Ukraine as evil forces and delivered a sermon in which he suggested the invasion was part of a larger metaphysical struggle against immoral Western values. All this is pretty hard to fathom, especially when both sides of the conflict are Christian and members of the same church, sharing a thousand years of religious history. I'm Lucy Ash, a writer and broadcaster, and I first attended an Orthodox liturgy in Moscow in the Soviet era, when there were men in red armbands standing outside the church, doing their best to stop anyone under the age of 60 from going inside. Now, although less than 5% of the population regularly attend services, the church establishment is really thriving under President Vladimir Putin. Patriarch Kirill has boasted that three new churches are built somewhere in Russia every day. But what's the relationship between the Kremlin and the church? In today's Things Unseen podcast, I'm joined by two people who can shed much more light on what's happening, the ideology behind it, and how people of faith are reacting to this deep crisis in the Christian world. One's an Orthodox insider. A few years back, Father Cyril Khavarum was appointed by Patriarch Kirill to shake up religious education policies of the Moscow Patriarchate. He was born and brought up in Ukraine. He first excelled in theoretical physics before moving on to theology. He's studied and he's taught in many of the world's top universities, and he's currently a professor in the Stockholm School of Theology. Cyril, welcome. Thank you so much. And the other guest I have today is from outside the Orthodox Church. Lord Richard Harries is a former Bishop of Oxford, Chairman of the Church of England, Board for Social Responsibility, and he's an Honorary Professor of Theology at King's College London. Very good to have you with us, Bishop Richard. Can I start with you, Cyril? Putin has said that Ukraine is an inalienable part of our own history, culture and spiritual space. Can you explain the idea of Holy Rus and why Ukraine's capital, Kiev, is so important in it? Right. Every country, most countries have their own founding myths. Russia has its own and uh, the so-called Holy Rus is a part of it. And um, Patrick Kirill has contributed to forming this uh, founding myth of the new Russian state after it emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Putin uh, seems to be buying into it and uh, reproducing it. And essentially what he said to justify the war was exactly uh, this mythology. For him, Ukraine is indeed one of the pillars of the Russian statehood. That's why he wants to retake it. He believes that the West, the evil forces of the West, uh, want to steal this uh, intrinsic part of the uh, Russian statehood from, from Russia. And that's one of the motivations why he waged this war. And he also used religion to justify the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, didn't he? That's correct. Can you explain the significance of that peninsula in the Black Sea to his world vision, uh, his religious Holy Rus crusade? Uh, for him, of course, religion is inseparable from politics. In this sense, he is very much like in the pre-Christian ancient era when 
religion and politics were always intertwined. He acts like an emperor. For him, this religion is also an instrument to expand his influence, political influence. But certainly he uh, he explains his advance to Crimea in, in metaphysical terms, if you want, claiming that Crimea was the place of baptism of Vladimir, the prince who introduced Christianity to the state of Rus, which is legendary because we don't know for sure whether he was baptized there, but Putin uses all those legends exactly to justify himself. And just for the uninitiated, um, Vladimir I, Volodymyr to the Ukrainians, yeah. was, was the man who made the Eastern Slavs Christians. Before that, they were pagans. Can you just explain uh, that process a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it happened in 988 in Kiev when the citizens of Kiev were baptized by the initiative of Vladimir at the time. And Rus at the time was one of the largest medieval states in, in Europe but was not yet a member of the Christian family of, uh, of countries, and Vladimir made it a, a part of the Christian family. And essentially, Putin, what Putin tries to do, he tries to replicate or to imitate Vladimir, in a sense. For, for many of his followers, he's like Vladimir II. That's why, for example, he installed a huge statue of Vladimir in front of the Kremlin soon after he was re-elected for the third term. And it was a, a hugely symbolic act. And I believe that even though he believes to be like the imitator of Vladimir, I think he goes against Vladimir. He is the anti-Vladimir, if you want. Vladimir Putin is the anti-Vladimir the prince, because what Vladimir tried to build, Putin destroys. Bishop Richard, as an outsider to this orthodox belief, but as a, as a fellow Christian, what's your reaction to the religious underpinning of this invasion of Ukraine? How do you see it? Well, I think, first of all, we have to look at the orthodox church in historical perspective. The orthodox church has always been a, having a, had a very close alignment between the state and the church. It goes right back, of course, to the conversion of Constantine uh, in the 4th century. And there's a, a wonderful mosaic in the Church of St. Vitali in Ravenna, which shows in the 5th century the Emperor Justinian and next door to him the Patriarch of Constantinople, Maximian. And this, what you might call Caesaropapalism, hand-in-hand, hand, church and state, has been a characteristic of the Orthodox Church. That has been a strength in that it's always been a church for the whole people in every aspect of life, and a terrible weakness because it's left the Orthodox Church in a very weak position when it tries to criticise uh, the state. And I have very, very vivid memories of the times that I used to visit the old Soviet Union. I can remember in particular... Uh, the great figure of the Archbishop of Minsk and Bilo, Russia, launching into a great peroration to the group, indicating that the Orthodox Church had always been a patriotic church. And it was indicating he, with his sort of finger, the ceiling above, as though he was being overheard because all rooms were bugged in those days. So it doesn't surprise me that there is this very close alignment. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Take on board what you say. I think Putin once described orthodoxy and nuclear weapons as twin elements of Russia's domestic and foreign security. Cyril, in practice, it seems that uh, the church provides a sort of fig leaf for some of uh, Putin's most aggressive foreign policies. And what does the church get in return? Yes, the church has provided the state with the ideological frame for Putin's Russia, essentially. And in exchange, it got a lot of benefits. The church is believed to be one of the largest receivers of, of the Russian public funds and uh, also gets 
informal, unofficial funds from the Russian state. And uh, I mean, the church flourishes, but again, the church not in the terms of the communities or not in the terms of the faithful, but the church as the structure, the establishment, the bishops and the patriarch himself, they got immensely uh, wealthy, but essentially, effectively, in the bottom uh, of it, uh, it's destructive for the church. And it seems that the Russian church is going through one of the of the severest crises in its history these days. And it's becoming, according to one piece I read, a pariah church inside a pariah state. Because, I mean, uh, the spiritual leader of the world's orthodox Christians, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, denounced the invasion of Ukraine as an atrocious act. And the Archbishop of Cyprus, Chrysostomus, said, first Vladimir Putin goes to church, puts on a cross, and then he kills. How religious is he really? He puts on a great show of being devout, but um, do, do you think he is a holy man? Well, certainly not. He has this identity of being an Orthodox, but what he does, in effect, is contrary to our tradition, I believe. He uses the church to its own uh, political ends. And I believe he has some kind of metaphysics. For Putin, Putin's metaphysics, I believe, is is very much dualistic. He sees the world indeed in black and white, and for him, uh, the good part of, of the world, the cosmic goodness, so to say, is embodied in Russia, and it has this cosmic fight against the global evil embodied in the global West, especially in the NATO, the United States, and now in the UK. And um, uh, he sees his mission as the mission of saving the world from the global kind of existential evil. It is mad. But I believe it is somehow what underpins his religiosity and his motivation uh, for war. Bishop Richard, is there any way in which Christians could uh, understand, empathize with what's happening in Ukraine from any perspective? Um, I think one of the hopes at the moment is uh, the reaction by other parts of the Orthodox Church against uh, Putin, and the great spiritual strengths, the beauty and the spiritual strengths that are in the Orthodox Church worldwide. And we mustn't, for goodness sake, judge the Orthodox Church by what uh, President Putin is doing in the present hierarchy uh, in Russia. I mean, I remember the time when uh, we were all hugely influenced by Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, who was the main Orthodox figure in London, hugely influential in Christianity worldwide. And that Orthodoxy is still there. There are extraordinary spiritual strengths in Russia which raised up courageous leaders despite the way that the leadership then was in cahoots with the KGB. So I don't lose heart in the Orthodox Church. And I think there's huge spiritual strengths there to give Christianity worldwide. And this is a terrible, terrible, wicked blip in it, but it is encouraging that so many Orthodox leaders are standing up and protesting. Yes. Um, let's talk first of all about how Orthodox churches inside Ukraine have reacted to the war, because, uh, Cyril, obviously Ukraine's got two Orthodox churches, an autocephalous one which broke away after the annexation of Crimea, and one that is technically or until very recently, has been loyal to Moscow, to the Moscow Patriarchate. Correct. Indeed, the, uh, Ukraine has two major Orthodox churches. They were divided until the war, more or less. They were not 
exactly at good terms with one another. But the war actually united them, and there is a process of reconciliation between the two groups. All of them, all Orthodox in Ukraine, together with the Greek Catholics, together with other religious communities like Jews, Muslims, they unanimously condemned the war. And uh, this goes in contrast to what is happening within Russia. I would say that the majority uh, within the Russian church, unfortunately, have been brainwashed and uh, have been affected by propaganda, and they are consolidated around Putin and around Patrick Hill in supporting this war. This is very tragic indeed. And I would say that the Russian church is now deeply divided. Already some parts of the Russian church, especially outside Russia, are descending, like the churches in in the Baltic countries, like, uh, for example, the most uh, famous case is the church in Amsterdam, which was under the influence of Metropolitan Anthony Bloom that Bishop Richard mentioned, really a a towering figure in, in the global orthodoxy. So in the spirit of Anthony Bloom, the parish in Amsterdam actually left the Moscow Patriarchate and switched to the Ecumenical Patriarchate. So this process of of division, of separation, of polarization within the Russian church is happening, and it will certainly lead to some kind of fragmentation of the church. And how much opposition is there inside the church in Russia to Patriarch Kirill? There was a letter signed by 300 priests, for example, Russian priests, with quite, you know, a weak statements regarding the war. Still, it was better than nothing. And uh, imagine that only 300 priests signed it against over 40,000 priests altogether in the Russian church. So it means that the rest keep silent. Most of them either passively or even actively support the war. And we know about the active support for the war from the, you know, sermons and statements on YouTube and uh, what they publish online on the social media. It's outrageous. And we see that, unfortunately, it's not just the leadership, not the problem of the leadership. It's the problem of the majority of the church, which seems to be still in favor, regardless of what they see on the, you know, on social media about what is happening in Ukraine, those massacres and so forth. They still support the war. And I mean, talking about the leadership for a sec, you have um, direct experience of working with Patriarch Kirill. What kind of a man is he? And how much has he changed? Because I remember when he was first made Patriarch, people described him as a modernizer. Indeed so, yes. He had this um, fame of being uh, liberal. Uh, he was probably the most liberal bishop in the in, in, in the entire Russian hierarchy. And he was the most open-minded, I would say, the most progressive. He made uh, very progressive statements. Uh, he was in favor of, you know, of the Western values and democracy and stuff. And then he changed and certainly he made a U-turn, I would say, in his public statements. He has this ability, I think, his charisma to convince people. As a preacher, he's very talented and convincing. And what happened to him, I think, that eventually he managed to convince himself of what he he was saying. Probably in the beginning, he just said what he was supposed to say. He promoted a, a particular agenda, and then he became a hostage of his own agenda. And I think um, it's a tragedy that he changed completely. I, I would say he's a completely different personality now. Bishop Richard, can you understand how... Uh, um, uh, a holy man, a man with so much spiritual authority invested in him, could make this 180-degree turn? We're all capable of deceiving ourselves. Uh, And before we start deceiving other people, we have deceived ourselves. Presumably, um, he's switching his position to meet with where power lies. This is always the terrible, terrible danger. And there's nothing more dangerous than alliance of religion and, and power, or oh, I can only guess, because I haven't had any contact with him uh, recently, that this switch 
was taken because there was been a switch in the political outlook. But I think our hope is we mustn't be totally gloomy about it. I think, first of all, I think there are two things. First of all, we have all of us who are so critical and rightly critical of what Russia is doing and what the Russian Orthodox Church is. We've got to remind ourselves that actually we all share the same humanity. We are all human beings, and we all desperately hope we would never do the kind of thing Putin does, but nevertheless we share human nature with him, and indeed from a Christian point of view, you know, we share membership of the body of Christ with Orthodox Christians. If I'm looking for hope, I would look for what kept the church going through all those years of communism. You know, the, the old ladies, the individual parish priest, the individual layperson who had the great courage to step out of line and protest. There weren't many of them, but somehow they kept the faith going through all those bleak 80 years or whatever it was. And we can hope again... I don't look for much hope myself in the Russian hierarchy. I mean, they are simply, uh, for the most part, really an agent of foreign propaganda, as they were during the Cold War years. But we can look outside the hierarchy. Can you just tell me what it is that you admire about the Orthodox faith? Um, I admire its beauty, its icons. If you were able to see my study now, you would see that it's studded with most beautiful icons, which for me, have very deep religious meaning. Uh, it, the spirituality of the Orthodox Church, uh, I think it's wonderful the way, for example, the Jesus Prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have pity on us, which is my shortened version of it, which I pray for Ukraine, uh, has really caught on in the West. The spiritual writers, uh, and then there's the music. I mean, there's this wonderful combination of the aesthetic and the and the spiritual uh, which is there, which many people, not least many Anglicans, do find very, very attractive. And I find also that the, the, the Orthodox theology, in many ways, much more uh, sympathetic to the Christian consciences. I mean, in Western Christianity, there's been huge emphasis simply on the cross and human sinfulness, whereas in the Orthodox Church, there's a, a even greater emphasis upon the resurrection of Christ and the presence with us of the Holy Spirit. And that, I believe, is what it should be. So I think the whole of Western Christianity actually needs to be shaped and influenced much more by Orthodox spirituality. But there's a wonderful story by a famous Orthodox theologian uh, who is alleged to have said, Ah, Orthodoxy, so beautiful, so beautiful. Why did God give it to the Orthodox? <laughs> and... The point of that, of course, is that orthodoxy is so bound up with nationalism and, uh, and, and therefore, uh, you know, as we see today, it spoils that beauty. Can I just tell you about one incident I came across in the city of Yekaterinburg? Mm. There was um, a young man who played Pokemon Go on his phone in the church. It's actually a church that was built on the spot where the Russia's last Tsar was murdered. And... Um, he was almost put in prison, although he had to care for an invalid mother and stuff. And I, I asked one of the um, uh, priests there what had happened to the spirit of Christian forgiveness, even mm -hmm. if this young man had shown uh, disregard for the feelings of other religious believers, even if it was a bit of a flippant, silly thing to do in a church. You know, he was a young guy. And where, where is the forgiveness and there doesn't seem very much forgiveness in, in Russia's Orthodox Church now. 
Now, I think the turning point for the Russian church was uh, the, the famous or infamous, rather, Pussy Riot episode when there was this punk band, female punk band, Pussy Riot, and they performed... Uh, some kind of performance. Um, it was a prayer to get rid of Putin. Yes, exactly, in the main cathedral of the Russian church. And they were put to prison, actually, actually to the prison for two years. And I believe that was the turning point. I, I put it in the terms that originally there was a Russian civil religion, which was kind of more or less moderate. And then it turned to a more hostile, more violent form of political religion, which is coercive by its nature. And this turning point happened exactly in 2012. That's why the episode with Pussy Riot, I think it's crucial in the entire evolution of the Russian church-state relations. And that, that episode exactly demonstrated the closeness, the dangerous closeness, indicated also by Bishop Richard between the Russian church and the, and the state. Yeah. Talking about something a bit different, Cyril, um, Patriarch Kirill's speech on Forgiveness Sunday, mm-hmm. it seems that the Russian Orthodox Church is quite obsessed with the sexual orientation in its relationship with the West, to the extent that it seemed that the patriarch was justifying invading Ukraine so that um, Ukrainians wouldn't be forced to hold gay parades. Uh, he, he seems to think that, that Ukraine is becoming a vassal of an evil West, a, a degenerate West that's um, making it lose its spiritual destiny or foothold. Yeah. Well, sometimes I think, you know, what the Jews were in Germany in the interwar period, that's what the gay people seem to be kind of for new autocrats or dictators, people like Putin. Uh, they are like scapegoats for everything or a pretext for any aggression. It's just a part of the narrative that the Patrick and the Kremlin together produce, the narrative which is anti-Western, which is anti liberal, anti-democratic. Essentially, Putin wants to preserve his own style of rule, his own autocracy. The Western democracy, liberal democracy, is a threat to him. And he tries to protect his own rule by rejecting, rebuking the Western patterns of uh, political culture and, and rule. They just use this gay issue or LGBTQ issue just to essentially to protect themselves and their own mechanisms of power against any influence of liberal democracy. So it's nothing, it has nothing to do essentially with the LGBT, you know, people. It's all about power, their own power and preserving their own power. Bishop Richard, it's been suggested that the least bloody way of ending this conflict would be to get rid of President Putin himself. Um, you know, by force, if necessary. I, I'm not actually sure if that's achievable, given all the protection he has. But to a Christian, is, is that justifiable? What do you think? There is a tradition, both within the Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism, of justified tyrannicide or justified assassination. Uh, in the West, it goes back to the 12th century, a man called John of Salisbury, who said that under certain circumstances, tyrannicide was justified. And at the time of the Reformation, there were a good number of Calvinist thinkers who believed that it was quite justified to overthrow somebody who was operating in a tyrannical way, provided, and this was a key consideration, a proper one, that they were capable of, of creating or recreating some kind of order afterwards. Because there's only one thing worse than an authoritarian regime, and that is total anarchy. And if we go back, of course, to the plots against Hitler, 
there were some very serious plots against Hitler. Sadly, they failed. Many of them were, the people taking part in those plots were serious Christians. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, thought long and hard about it, but in the end thought that it, it was justified. So certainly there is a moral tradition within Christianity which would allow for that. But whether there is anybody in the Russian ruling regime equivalent to the, the generals in the Hitler regime who were actually prepared to overthrow Hitler, we just don't know. Um, could I just make one more point, which I think that perhaps we haven't really covered, and that is actually what is happening in Russia is not totally isolated in the world today, that on so many countries there are kind of uh, uh, emergence of a new authoritarian uh, regimes. Now, the idea of a kind of unified ideology in a state where everybody shares the sort of same perspective on life, religious and political, you know, is a very attractive idea. It was certainly, it certainly was very attractive to the early Byzantine rulers and the states were, which were influenced by Byzantine culture. But, of course, what we discovered in the West from the 17th century, the simple fact is people have different views. People have very deeply felt different convictions about what life is all about and how it should be organised. And, of course, since the 17th century, we struggle actually to take into that into account and create a pluralist society. And we assumed that the Western vision of a pluralist society was just going to go on gathering strength until everybody was won over by it. But what we discovered, of course, over the last 10 years, that this is not immediately attractive to a lot of countries. What's happening in India, for example, which was in one way still a proud democracy, but is now a very, very authoritarian regime. What is happening in Hungary with just the recent Hungarian elections? So I think this is a call to those of us who believe in pluralist democratic societies to ask ourselves, do we really hold by our convictions? We drift along, we take it for granted, we take it for granted, we have elections to parliament, we take it for granted, we have a free press. That's a very wonderful, precious heritage, and you can't take it for granted. It's a fragile achievement. For a lot of people in Russia and Ukraine, uh, until quite recently, democracy seemed um, quite a difficult concept, something that they really didn't warm to. I mean, it was almost like a swear word in, in some parts of Russia because of all the chaos that came with the market economics and people losing their jobs and their savings. And um, the reason that Putin was so popular is because he brought in a period of stability. Yes, well, one can really understand that. I mean, w the Wild West capitalism that ruled after the breakdown of the war was quite appalling. And yeah, of course, yeah. there's still a lot of Wild West capitalism going on. And democracy, as we know it, is very deeply flawed. But as Reinhold said, it's it's the worst possible system in the world, except for all the others. <laughs> yes. I, I, do, I mean, a lot of soul-searching has gone on about the mistakes that the West made in the early 90s, Cyril, um, that people were not really brought on board in the right way, uh, you know, that there wasn't enough empathy uh, for how hard it is to make a transition from a command economy to a market economy to go from a communist system to a democracy with free elections. What do you think should have been done? Well, that's what Putin says, actually, I believe. And actually, Putin has benefited immensely from the Western democracy. All the assets of, of Putin and his cronies, they are in the West. 
and they have been integrated very deeply into the Western capitalism. And what they say against the West is just a pretension. It's one of many hypocrisies that they produce. Actually, in Ukraine, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we were in the same position, the collapsing economy, shrinking economy. And still in Ukraine, we came to uh, realize on our own somehow that democracy is the best thing that we could get. And actually for us, and that is, a, I think, one of the main differences between Russia and Ukraine, even though we, st- we had the same starting position. And now we protect our democracy, regardless of what the West does. Even we see that the support of the West, yes, sometimes the West barks but doesn't bite quite like the, the Russians. We go for democracy regardless. And I think um, now Ukraine is a bulwark of, of, of democracy in Europe. It's really a demonstration that the values, the Western democratic values matter, and people sacrifice their lives for that. Many thanks, Father Cyril Varun. It's really great to have you with us. And many thanks to you, Bishop Richard. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'm Lucy Ash, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, which was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.